God, I don't, I don't admit to have any clue how to describe why. I don't. I don't get it. I still don't get it. I know how often I say things like, God, if I, if I had your power, if I was God, I would. And that is so wrong of me to do. So I ask for your forgiveness for how often I can jump to conclusions of thinking I could do your job better. But at least, God, I thank you that you, you invite us to be honest that, God, I don't, we don't get this. And yet, God, we trust you that you're good and you're great. And you know what you're doing and everything that goes on. You know the purposes behind why you do things and why you don't do things. And so, Father, I pray for those whose faith's been rocked a little bit this week. Father, I pray that you would invite them and they would sense your invitation to be brutally honest and raw before you. And I pray that they would take advantage of that. And then, Holy Spirit, I pray that as they do, that you would be the helper that you are. And that you would meet them and comfort them and confront them with ideas and thoughts, convict and encourage. God, for those families who are dealing with the loss, it is so new. Father, we pray that you'd bring comfort upon them. Father, there's a void. I can't even imagine what they're going through, and yet, God, I thank you that you get it. Father, you know what it's like to lose a son. And so if anyone can relate and help, you are the one that can do that. And so I pray, Father of compassion, that you would show them comfort, give them comfort. I pray that you use churches in that area, followers of Jesus, use them in a great way to impact people, to meet needs. <clears throat> Father, I pray that conversations would come up, that the gospel would be proclaimed and that lives would be saved. I pray for wisdom for leaders and authorities, God, that you'd help them to know what you want them to do. Father, there would be this desire to get away from politics and just make decisions that are best for communities based upon what you desire instead of just fighting on the other side of the aisle. What's best, God, for people? God, help that to be the, make that be the focal point. But give wisdom. I don't pretend to know what to do. Just help us do our part. Now, God, as we open your word, I pray that you would give us insight, humility, help us to be teachable. God, I don't, I don't pretend to, I don't pretend to ever think that I've got it together. All I do know is I just love you a lot. And I just want us to love you more. Help us to love you most so we can love each other and others best. God, keep my agenda myself. <clears throat> May we only hear your truth. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says, amen. All right, we're in 1 Kings chapter 17. You're like, what about Colossians? We're taking one week off. And this is, came from our Bible reading plan, so forgive me. But every once in a while, something pops out and I'm like, oh, we might have to go with this. And that's why, that might also be why we take so long to get through a book. Because all of a sudden my mind will go to places. But then, I think this was Monday's reading. And when I finished, it was just, it was just, I just felt like it was impressed on me. Stick here. Stay here. And I had no clue why. I didn't really actually start reading and studying until Tuesday. That was just my personal time with the Lord. And so I just said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the commitment. I, told, I usually tell uh, Haley on Mondays, here's the passage so that she can read through it and pray through it. She should pick songs that go with it. And so as I started getting into it, I just thought, man, I think this is something that's pretty powerful, so long as it's not something that I'm just excited about. I don't want to be one of those guys like, oh, I've got so excited reading this. And people are like, oh, 
I hate this. So hang with me as I think that this is something that I think is fitting for all of us, especially what's been going on recently. I'll start with the last verse because that's never what you do. But in verse 24 of 1 Kings 17, it says, And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Most public speaking professionals would say, you don't start with the end because now you've just given up the ending. Well, it's not like people can't read this. And so if you read it this week, you already know the ending. So I'm not really messing up at all. But I feel like there's three words that stand out to me in that passage, especially what she said, the first three words that she said to Elijah. Now I know. See, it'd be one thing if she just said, I know this to be true. But she says, now I know. And there's something in that now. There's something that has happened that has caused her to come to this place. I am now convinced of this. Something changed where she was now convinced of something happening. When I was reading through that, it then took my mind, went to the, when you, whenever you go to a, like a cemetery and you see the tombstones or the epitaphs or whatever, and you'll see their name and you'll see the day they were born. Some get fancy, they put the date, not just the year, but the date. And then a dash and then the day they died. And really, like the biggest points on that tombstone are what? Day of death, a day of birth, and day of death. And then the dash is supposed to represent every single thing that happened in that person's life, however long they lived. One little dash. One little dash is supposed to give you this description of what it is that they actually encountered, what they endured, what they celebrated, what they went through, all the memories in a dash. All this, this small little thing, you said that, and we pass by it, because does anybody else do this? You try to do the math? I'm usually passing by going, okay, how old were they? How old, how old were they? And I'm not quick with math, but some of them, especially if it's like, I don't know, 96 to 2006, I'm like, I can do that math. But then it breaks my heart when they're kids, I'm like, and so I start praying, I'm like, God, I don't understand this one. And I, I, just keep, I just keep looking at the dates, but I think we need to focus on the dash and then ask the question, how are we living out our dash? Like, how are we living out our now? Are we actually living this life where you go, okay, this is the life that God wanted me to live. I look into the scriptures and I say, okay, this is what it's supposed to be like. Or do I just go, oh, I'm just waiting for death. It's like, well, I'm just kind of existing and living and then one day I'm gonna die and I'll have some fun things I've done. Or at the end of our lives, we look and go, what a ride. What a ride. But the next question is, do you actually believe that your now impacts somebody else's not yet? And here's why, here's why I think it's so important, guys. We're going to go back to chapter 17, starting in verse 1. I'm going to try to summarize this stuff as, as quick as I can. A guy by the name of Ahab, he's king. Um, and if you've been brought up in the church, you know Ahab. He's not the greatest guy. In fact, he's done more evil than any other king up to that point. And yet he's also pretty successful at what he did. As a political military leader, he receives good marks. He did a good job. So you look at it, he was effective in defeating Israel's Syrian enemies. He joined a coalition army which halted the invasion of a great Assyrian force. He maintained the borders of his land. He was able to contribute 2,000 chariots, which is like tanks, tanks of their day, to contribute 2,000 chariots along with 10,000 foot soldiers to the coalition. So he's popular with that. And then when it comes economically, this is, we can all kind of relate with this part right, right, right now? The gas prices are out, inflation's crazy, then I start bringing these things up, people on both sides are, oh, I know who to blame, we're going to blame the other side, everyone's lying about it, so let's just get back to this. Israel's prospering, then there's this thing called the 
um, the Phoenician alliance that meant that the sea trade, here's Israel landlocked, the sea trade is now opened up and they're able to be part of this trade route. So they're booming. It even says in 1 Kings 22, verse 39, now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house that he built, dang, a house made of ivory, impressive. So he built this house of ivory and he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So he, he did well economically, but there was this one problem. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Isn't it amazing how quickly we'll settle for any kind of leader, so long as what? It seems successful and it gets a little bit more comfortable for me. And yet before God, God's sitting there going, they have done more evil than anyone prior. Brian, who are you talking about? I'm not talking about anybody. Remember, I don't like politics. I don't jump into the, I don't jump into the fight. But friends, before we start tooting the horn of who it is that we support, what we should be desiring first and foremost is that before God, they're right. God is the one who decides what's good and evil. And if all we're looking is for successes so that we feel a bit more comfortable, but not desiring to see that things are righteous, that righteous decisions are made, or righteousness before God, we're missing it. We're missing the point. He's successful, prosperous, but he did more evil than all the other kings before him. Verse 31. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of, of, of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So this is who's in charge. Be careful of the lure of success. And then you have Elijah show up. And here in verse one, it introduces him. The, then, now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Man, if anyone says that the Bible doesn't relate with life today, man, it relates. Because how many of us in California understand that part? I'm now seeing all these signs. Hey, you can never wash or you can never wash your car and you can never water grass ever. It's over. You ever feel like you know what the drought is? And here comes Elijah going, hey, it's not gonna rain until I say that it's gonna rain. And then can you imagine actually somebody walking up and saying that and then you actually, all of us would think they're nuts. Until about month three, month four, year one, year two, and it's happening. But this is what he says. This is what's going to happen. Why? God is going to what? He's showing discipline. He's punishing Ahab and Israel for the rebellion against him. But Elijah stops the rain. And then what does God tell him to do right after that? Run. Run and hide. That doesn't sound right. We're Americans. Like you're supposed to fight. You fight everything. You just start fighting about everything. This is what we do. You stand, you hold your ground because God's got your back. And here comes God looking at Elijah going, take off and hide. Look at verse three. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have, <laughs> I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Sure. Just let that sink in for just a second. God tells you, I want you to pick up everything and take off. Where do you want me to go? I want you to go to this place. I'm going to provide water from the little brook, okay? How about food? 
Don't worry about it. I've talked to some ravens. The first Uber Eats are going to show up. The ravens are going to fly over. They're going to drop down some meat and bread every morning and every evening. Guys, I'll be honest. At no point would I sit there and go, let's do it. I would pack my backpack as full as I could with jerky. Just to get ready, because I'm like, really, God? Like, ravens who want to eat the bread, who want to eat the meat, they're just going to fly over and just drop some of it? Like, that's all that's going to happen. That's what God says to do. Isn't it amazing that when God tells us to do something that's a little bit out of our comfort zone, the first thing that we do is we jump to, but what about or how? Okay, you want me to, but what about and how are you going to? Friends, if God can command birds to drop food for you, I'm pretty sure he can pretty much handle everything else. That one's a big one for me. And I don't know that I said, I would do that. But verse 6, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. If I was Elijah, I'd just sit there, okay, I got water. And what would I do? What would you do if you're Elijah? And that first meal, evening, raven comes, drops it off. You don't have to give a tip. Boom, takes off, flies away. Next morning, same thing. Morning, evening, morning, evening. First one, is it really gonna happen? Drops it. Maybe you laugh, you kind of lose it a little bit. Next morning, happens. Then day after day, you get what? You get used to it. Why? Because this is God's provision. This is what he's doing. And then he says this in verse seven. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And now it's time for Elijah to move again. God says, I want you to move. I want you to go to a place called Zarephath. The brook has dried up. Guys, I gotta be honest. We always think this. No, maybe I'm being a little bit too, too much. Maybe we don't always, maybe this is me. Often I think God's gonna come through exactly how I picture him to. Like everything that I think in my mind, that's exactly how God's going to come through. And yet for Elijah, his man, the prophet of God, was in a place where stuff dried up. And yet God knew what he's going to do next. So he says, I want you to go to Zarephath, and I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Verse 9, behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Verse 10, so what was Elijah's response? So he arose and went. Doesn't say the woman's name. Doesn't say when he'll meet her. Nothing. Just, I've commanded a woman or a widow to take care of you, to feed you. And so what does he do? He goes. Well, how could he do it? Because he just watched God feed him for however long he was here, feed him morning and evening by using a raven to drop off food. And so Elijah has this past picture of God's faithfulness. This is what God has done. He's now telling me to go here. I'm going to do it because I've already seen it. Which this should be our prayer. Maybe tomorrow we wake up. God, help me see your faithfulness and what it is that you do today. Help me to see your faithfulness and what it is that you do today. Because then at the end of the day, maybe we'd actually have more, more things on our list of gratitude where we can actually say, God, I want to thank you for, because I actually asked you in the beginning to show me your faithfulness today. So Elijah gets there, and right when he shows up, there's the city gate. There's a widow picking up sticks. And he looks at her, and I don't know how he knew to ask her, but says, hey, could you get me a drink of water? Which I'm not going to lie, the first thing I'm like, how lazy are you? Like, go just find some water. 
hey, could you give me some water? And she, and she obliges. She shows hospitality, which is huge in that culture. She goes up, and as she's walking off, he goes, oh, also, could you also give me some bread? What? The nerve. And what's her response? She's like, I don't have anything made. And honestly, this, is, this should make your heart hurt a little bit. Honestly, I'm just out here picking up sticks to go back. I have enough flour and enough oil to make bread one more time, have our last supper, me and my son, and then we're going to die. She actually says, and we're going to die. And here comes Elijah. Elijah says, wow. Okay, well, if you could make mine first and then make some for yourself. And I got to be honest, if I was, if I was there, I might have smacked him. Like, how could you on it? Like, you just heard, here's this widow. She's going to go bake the last meal for her and her son before they die. And he goes, okay, wow, that's tough. I'm first, though. Could you make my bread before yours? But he gives the reason behind it. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. In other words, he's saying, God told me you're going to be taken care of. So does it really matter who gets it first? Isn't this, a, isn't this a, a step of faith for her? Really, I'm going to spend the last I have to make sure that he has something? But he just told me that I'm going to be provided for until God sends rain. How could Elijah be so sure? Well, because he had Uber Eats over here with the ravens, right? He has this meal taken care of. He shows up to the city just like God said, there she is. He's providing along the way. He has past, he sees the past faithfulness of God that impacts his present. And his present is now impacting her present. Do you see how we all of a sudden we become a little bit more interconnected with people when we actually deal and are around people? Not just apps, but people. That God is interacting, God is moving, God is doing what he does best. And then you get to verse 17. Like everything seems great. Because it says that the, the flour never, uh, was never spent. The oil lasted. And so everything seems fantastic. The family's saved. Even things, things are great. And verse 17 comes along. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. In other words, he died. And she said to Elijah... What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. The word cause actually is the word to kill or to murder. And so here's what she's saying. You murdered my son. Guys, Elijah had nothing to do with it. I mean, he, had, he honestly didn't even know what was going to happen. He just followed where God said to go. God provided. And it's like, look at this victory. And isn't it amazing how often something massively great happens and then boom. It's almost like God forgot this is where I want to live. And something now horribly difficult happens. Something that wasn't planned or predicted. Elijah didn't get word this is what's going to happen next. And that thing caused her to go to the one who was connected to God and to blame the one connected to God for the murdering of her son. And I wrote this in my notes, and maybe it's just a reminder for me, but I'm hoping that it's applicable for all of us. Be prepared to take the emotional reactions of those who feel like God has failed them. 
That friends, there's gonna be things that happen in life and here we are, we're proclaiming God is great, God is good, God is great, God is good. It's only through Jesus. Let me tell you how fantastic Jesus is. And we're proclaiming all this goodness of God and then Monday happens. And you know, people going, oh, so you're still telling me that God is great and good and they'll start ripping into us because we're representatives of this great and good God. And our response should never be retaliation. It should be the same as what Jesus's was. You let him vent. Friends, he was so humble, he took a cross. And we're told to pick up our crosses daily. And so what if in that moment, in that hurt and that pain, we don't take it personal because maybe it's just not against us, but we're his representatives and we're the closest thing to God that they'll ever get, not because we're great, but because God in us is great. And they just got to let it out. And if all of a sudden we react or respond like everybody else does, we're not representing Jesus well then. And so in that moment, we pull back. And if they need to rip, they rip. And it's okay. And it's not personal. But friends, we have to have a conviction God is great, God is good. God is great, and God is good. And if Jesus is the one that I strive to live my life after, then oh, how I pray that every response and reaction looks just like him. There's a song, has anybody heard the, the, the singing duo, Shane and Shane? Anybody ever heard them? There's a few maybe. I love them. Their, their harmony just blows my mind. I can kind of sing. I like singing, but I can't harmonize. Does anybody have that problem? You try to harmonize, and it's nowhere close. I mean, you're in, you're in a certain key, and when you start to harmonize, you're in a completely different, like, multiverse key. It's not even part of the keys that we have. on the, That's me. When I try to harmonize, and that's why I'm, I'm really thankful that my microphone's usually off, because sometimes I'll try to get in that harmonizing, and if... if if it's ever not been muted online and you've been watching, I'm so sorry because it was horrible. I promise you, it's not good. But these guys nail it, but they have one of my favorite songs. And it sounds horrible. It sounds weird. This is one of my favorite songs. But the title of the song is, Though You Slay Me. Let that encourage you. And the song is based upon Job, Job chapter, I think it's Job, Job, Job 13, 15, where Job is saying this to God. And so here... They're singing the song, though you, God, may slay me. Guys, that's a pretty honest prayer. But the words of it in Job 13, 15, it says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. I love that. It's like, okay, though he hurts me, I'm still gonna hope in him, but I'm gonna let him have it. I'm gonna argue. I'm gonna bring my case before him. And this song, the chorus goes like this, though he slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. That even if, God, you have to do this, I still choose to worship you because you're worth it. Just like Job, who lost everything in the matter of a day. And yet still says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Followers of Jesus, we have to be at that place with God in order to be prepared to help those who come who are frustrated or angry or ticked off with God to point them back to the God who desires them.
So in verse 19, and he said to her, shut your mouth. That's not what he says. Watch this. He says, give me your son. Give me your son. And he took him from her arms. And so this is a little guy. Took him from, he took him from her arms and carried him up the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God. I'm, I'm sorry, and laid him on his bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned? Now watch it, by killing her son. Woo! I love reading this stuff. Why? Because it gives us the freedom to be just as honest. Elijah just accused God of killing her son. They've experienced all this stuff before, all this calamity. And now they're experiencing this. She has to experience the death of her son. You killed her son. But did you notice how he started? Oh, Lord, my God. In other words, I know who you are and I know my place. But because I know who you are and I know my place, I can speak to you. And he doesn't understand it. And then this is the part where I think he just guessed what to do next. I don't, I, I don't know what, like, why would you come up with this? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times. Do you ever wonder if God's in heaven going, why is he doing that? Like, I didn't even tell him to do that. But he's like, oh, at least he's being creative. He believes something. He lays himself on the child three times and cried to the Lord. Now watch it. He is so specific in his prayer. Oh, Lord, my God, let, watch it, let this child's life come into him again. <clears throat> Do you ever wonder, if we pray these kind of prayers, what would actually happen? What would happen if we prayed audacious prayers? He didn't say, oh, comfort the family, which I think we should. But he said, oh, God, I prayed, resurrect this boy. Bring this one back to life. He prays for the impossible because he believes his God can do it. And here's how I find myself praying often. God, I pray that you would do the miraculous. But, and it's okay if I say, your will be done. But what if I start off that way? God, your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, I know in the kingdom, miraculous things happen. You can do anything you want. So because of that, man, do this. What if God wants us to pray the bigger prayers? What if he's sitting there going, you're settling for the easy stuff. Ask for the big stuff. Ask, why? Why do we get to ask? Because what dad doesn't like to show off for his kids? I remember when the boys were little. Everything I did was impressive. Everything. Like I I pick up luggage. He's so, he's so strong. <clears throat> I am strong. It's my backpack. They're like dragging my backpack. Yeah, I'm strong. Now the stuff I pick up, they're like, and? I'm like, boys, I just picked up my backpack. And they're like, we did too. I'm not as impressive. But when you're little, man, I'll show off. Building stuff? Man, I could build stuff when they were young. Because they had no clue if it was supposed to work that way or not. <laughs> like if I got to change it, okay, one of the most terrifying things has nothing to do with the message. I've got a little bit of time. Changing the filter for the refrigerator, it's terrifying to me. Because I did it one time and I forgot to turn one part off. And I took it off and, I'm like, and Kelly's home. I'm like, ah, I'm trying to you know, be impressive to her because I'm like, what, what wife doesn't think their man is sexy when you do this right? 
So I take the filter off, and all of a sudden, water's just shooting. I have like this fountain going on in our little kitchen. So I turn off the water. I'm like, that didn't, didn't work out right. In any way, you ever wonder if God's just saying, just ask? Guys, we can ask for the small things and for the big things, and do you realize it takes the same amount of quote-unquote effort for God to do either because it takes him no effort? Do we pray for big things? Pray fervently for big things. Fervently, that's the big part, guys, that we pray fervently before the Lord. It, it aches us, it gets us. We wanna make sure he hears us. And I'm convinced that God still responds and his will will be accomplished. He says, oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. <clears throat> James talks about Elijah in James chapter five, verse 17. Because we could look at Elijah and go, yeah, but that's Elijah. I'm not Elijah. And God would sit there and go, you're right, you're not. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the same Holy Spirit in you. I have the Holy Spirit in me who is all-powerful, mighty God. James says it. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This was years ago. I think we're still here. I think we, we were here, but right when we started, the drought was still going on. There's always a drought. No joke. And guys, I, I, don't even, I want to make sure this comes across. This wasn't me. Okay, I'm not like the man. But I remember it's like, guys, we should pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's get this rid of this drought. So we prayed. No joke. The next day, it poured. And I'm like, I did it. I did it. Look what I just accomplished. I ended the drought. So I'm going to pray. And no joke, I was talking about it yesterday with Kelly on the phone. I was talking to her. I was like, hey, remember that? Remember that I prayed and the next day it happened? So I was like, God, what if it happened again in this morning? No joke. In Rancho, it was wet when I woke up. I'm like, I'm getting good at this. Why does James say this? Because we can look at the heroes, quote unquote, of the faith and go, I could never be like that. And God's sitting there going, why do you keep limiting yourself by wanting to be like the people rather than the God of the people? We can pray whatever we want. We can ask the Lord and we get to submit to his will and know that he's great and good. So we can ask. We have the audacity to ask him for anything we want and trust him. But he asks for the resurrecting of a child to give back to, her, to his mom. Verse 22, this is uh, for the greatest words, and the Lord listened. Uh, I want to encourage you, friends, when you pray, God listens. Every time, every word, every syllable, every grunt or groan, because you don't know how to get the words out. Every tear he notices, every, every cry he hears, he's involved. Every laughter, every moment of celebration, he hears and listens to all of it. He's involved. He loves to hear from us. And so the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And what do you think Elijah did? I would have lost it. It's like, it worked. Then you write a book. Here's how you resurrect children. Just lay it on three times. Done. The end. Make millions. Guys, I guarantee that he just gave praise to God. This is a miracle. He got to watch because he had the nerve to ask God for the miraculous. 
Verse 23, and Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber and talked trash to his, I'm just joking, from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And now I get back to verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, watch it. Now I know. Now I know. Why is that so important? Friends, she didn't come to that part because God provided enough oil and flour for her to live on for three and a half years or however long it was. It wasn't the provision of God that got her to the point where it's like, now I know. It was the resurrection of a son that got her to the point where now she knew. Now, because of what I've experienced, because of what happened in that dash, now I know. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Friends, you know what? I think this is right. Why doesn't God, step, why doesn't God stop every crisis before it happens? I think part of it's because he's got to get people to this point where they'll say, now I know. Now I know God. And now I know that every word that he says is true. Now I know. And now, what about for us? Like, we already know God. Like, why would he still let it, let it happen? Because isn't it just incredible to be in the front row of the miraculous when it does happen? And doesn't the dash mean a lot more? It's like, yeah, I don't know if I agree with you on that part. Well, maybe it's because you're in the midst of it. You're in the midst of the pain. You're in the midst of the thing that wasn't supposed to be happening. But I promise you this. The same response that she had is the same response that you will have. I'm not saying the outcome will be the same. I'm just telling you that God will do what he does and do it well. And even if it's just this, that one day heaven will be sweeter because of what it is that he allowed us to experience, then we give him praise and we trust him in the process as the team comes back up to lead us in this last song. Like I said, the provision of flour and oil did not bring her to this total conviction of now I know. What was it? It was when her son was resurrected. Friends, there's something that happens when someone who was dead comes back to life. You sit there and go, well, of course. The fathers of Jesus, shouldn't our lives be that same testimony? That before Christ, we were dead in our sins. And we surrendered to Christ, we're resurrected to new life. That our lives should be this constant testimony to others. Hey, God is, a, God is a God who is about making bad things good. No, 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 no. He's a God who's about making dead things come to life. But ultimately, friends, it was about a son being resurrected. And this is where I want to point us back to Jesus. It's amazing how everything changed when Jesus was resurrected. Everything changed to where now we can sit there and go, now I know. Now I know. And friends, that's still the message that the world needs to hear about Jesus coming, dying, taking the wrath of God on our behalf because we deserve it, and then coming back from the dead. Friends, if Jesus never came back from the dead, we are to be most pitied. Because if Jesus couldn't beat death, then neither will we. That Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. But friends, in order for that to be true, he had to come. 
They had to take what it is that we deserved. And yet the Son of God died and was resurrected and millions and millions of people since that moment have been impacted by a resurrected Son to where they can say, now I know. Can you imagine what it's like to take your last physical breath on the planet and then to stand in the presence of Jesus and be able to say, now I know all of it's true. All of it's true. Everything I heard, everything I lived for, now I see him. Oh, that's it. That's it. That's all I want. Because it's just about Jesus. Now I know. Because the son was resurrected. Because Jesus resurrected from the dead. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 8. Let this encourage your soul for those who are going through such a hard time. That Paul says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who what? Who raises the dead. Isn't it amazing that out of anything that Paul could have said in that moment, to make sure we get this, the thing that will encourage you the most is that you're going to go through difficult, difficult times and difficult situations. And why do we have to go through that? So we learn not to rely upon ourselves who are limited and finite, but that we learn to rely upon God who's limitless and perfect in power. How powerful is he? He raises the dead. That's who we go back to. We want to go back to him. I don't want to rely upon myself. I'm so limited in everything. And God is perfect and powerful. So if I've got to go through some things on this planet to remind me, don't rely upon yourself, but rely upon Jesus, who's infinite, sovereign, commander of everything. Then God, your will be done. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope. This is what he's done. This is what he's going to do. And because of that, we will trust him with what's to come still. On him we have set our hope that, we, that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by what? Prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Who is this God? He's Adonai. He's the very great Lord and master. He's sovereign controller. He's Elohim. Elohim is the, the plural form for the word El, which is God. Why the plural? Because he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the plurality of the Trinity. He's the great I am. That means he's the great self-existent one who's not dependent on anyone or anything in order to exist and do what he does. He's El Shaddai, which means he's God Almighty. And because he's God Almighty, he is Prince of peace. And with that peace, it's like, well, from a distance, he just helps us feel better. No, no, no. He takes on the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning what? God with us. That all perfect, all powerful master, commander of the universe says, I'll give you my peace, but my peace comes with me. He comes. That's Emmanuel. And there's something that God does through a resurrected son.
For without the resurrected son, we'd be lost. But because of him, we hope. Though he may slay me, yet I will hope in him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Oh, how I pray this is what you wanted. God, remind all of us, but especially of those who are going through just what seems hopeless, may they be able to say the same words. Though he may slay me, yet I will put my hope in him. I will put my hope and my trust in him. God, resurrect marriages. God, resurrect health family. God, bring people that don't know you to you, those who've wandered. God, bring them back. God, bring peace. God, bring provision. But ultimately, God, help us to convey the truth of the beauty of a resurrected son so that people will finally say, now I know. God, we love you. Adonai, Elohim, the great I am. Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, God, worthy you were, worthy you are, worthy you will always be. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you more than you know.